You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's December 13th, 2023, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, Iranian hacktivists hit a Pennsylvania water utility. Attacks against water systems are an instance of a larger threat. Supply chain vulnerabilities in the electrical sector. We welcome guest Nick Sana of the FAIR Institute and Safe Security today. Nick talks about the challenges the White House faces in attempting to harmonize critical infrastructure regulations. The Learning Lab has part two of a discussion on building automation systems that Dragos's Mark Urban had with colleagues Daniel Gaeta and Zach Spencer. The Municipal Water Authority of Alakippa, Pennsylvania, said on November 25th that the Iranian hacktivist group, the Cyber Avengers, had taken control of one of the local water utilities' booster stations. The group cited the target's use of Israeli-made Unitronics PLCs as justification for the attacks. The attack affected a station that monitors and regulates pressure for Raccoon and Potter townships. KDKA, CBS News Pittsburgh, reported that the attack immediately tripped an alarm and that neither the safety nor the availability of the township's water were affected. The attackers displayed a message on the station's monitors expressing their political purpose, stating, You have been hacked down with Israel. Every equipment made in Israel is Cyber Avengers' legal target. The utility used a programmable logic controller provided by Unitronics, an Israeli company. The Beaver Countyan reports that operators responded to the alarm by reverting to manual control. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency confirmed that the systems exploited in the attack were Unitronics programmable logic controllers. In general, CISA explains, PLCs are used in the water and wastewater sector to control and monitor various stages and processes of water and wastewater treatment, including turning on and off pumps at a pump station to fill tanks and reservoirs, flow pacing chemicals to meet regulations, gather compliance data for monthly regulation reports, and announcing critical alarms to operations. The Cyber Avengers, a hacktivist group connected to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, have claimed attacks on utilities before, but those utilities have been in Israel. In October, they claimed to have attacked closed-circuit television systems at the national water company Mekorot. That attack they appeared to have actually carried out. That same month, they also claimed falsely to have compromised the Dorad power station, also in Israel. The Pennsylvania attack indicates an expansion of the group's activities. The Cyber Avengers have been known for exaggerating their cyber attack capabilities. However, their recent attack in late November 2023 did mark a shift as they successfully compromised Unitronics PLC devices, affecting global entities in the U.S., Europe, and Australia. 
This attack targeted devices made in Israel regardless of their location or use. Mark Plemons, Senior Director of Threat Intelligence at Dragos, notes that prior to this attack, the Cyber Avengers had announced intentions to target Israeli technology companies. They likely scanned for publicly accessible Unitronics devices and accessed them using default passwords available online. Fortunately, the group lacks specific operational technology capabilities, so the attack was limited to altering the PLC device's HTML menu pages with anti-Israel commentary. The incident underscores the importance of fundamental security measures in OT systems, including adhering to the SANS five critical controls for OT cybersecurity. 2023 has seen an increase in hacktivist activities, particularly driven by the Ukraine-Russia and Israel-Hamas conflicts. These groups, including pro-Russia and pro-Hamas hacktivists, have targeted critical infrastructure and spread misinformation. Despite their claims, most of these attacks have had minimal impact, often disrupting only organizational websites. However, they have achieved typical hacktivist goals, gaining notoriety, spreading misinformation, and attracting media attention to their causes. The Cyber Avengers attack, while limited in impact, represents a successful OT attack and highlights the potential risks of insufficiently secured OT systems. Iran isn't the only government displaying an interest in infrastructure. In what appears to be a staging and battle space preparation effort, China's People's Liberation Army cyber operators have intruded into infrastructure in several countries, with special attention to the United States, the Washington Post reports. The incursions, U.S. officials say, are part of a broader effort to develop ways to sow panic and chaos or snarl logistics in the event of a U.S.-China conflict in the Pacific. The staging forms part of the ongoing Volt Typhoon campaign. The latest U.S. disclosures build on February's annual assessment by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. The Post quotes CISA Executive Director Brandon Wales as saying, It is very clear that Chinese attempts to compromise critical infrastructure are in part to pre-position themselves to be able to disrupt or destroy that critical infrastructure in the event of a conflict, to either prevent the United States from being able to project power into Asia or to cause societal chaos inside the United States to affect our decision-making around a crisis. That is a significant change from Chinese cyber activity from seven to ten years ago, that was focused primarily on political and economic espionage. Russia's war in Ukraine, like the war between Hamas and Israel, have both been hybrid wars with significant action in cyberspace. CSO has an essay describing this spillover and how security teams should prepare for it. The essay argues that public and private sector organizations are both likely to become targets of cyber attacks mounted as contributions to such wars, and that security teams should recognize this risk, understand that the risk is unlikely to be catastrophic, and apply sound risk management practices to deal with it. The essay states, Cybersecurity teams must persistently simulate and collaborate with information sharing geared toward an adaptive defense posture, that consistently tailors and retailers internal practices toward shifting geopolitical conditions. Much of the spillover CSO mentions sloshes into industrial control systems, 
the Alakippa municipal water system incident should be understood not so much as an attack against a water utility as an attack against a target of opportunity. The Cyber Avengers hit vulnerable PLCs. Those are used in many industrial applications. They are not exclusively or even primarily found in water and wastewater treatment and distribution facilities. So, Unitronics PLCs are widely used in a range of sectors that extend far beyond water treatment and distribution systems. The company lists categories of applications for their PLCs as including packaging, manufacturing, medical, food and beverage, material processing, oil and gas, and many others. We might add breweries to the list. Another attack has surfaced, also in Pennsylvania, in which a Unitronics PLC was hacked to display the same message that appeared on the water systems controller. Sentinel-1 observes, The Full Pint Beer Brewery in Pittsburgh shared images on social media on the 28th of November showing a similar defacement of a Unitronics PLC in use as part of their control system. If taken at face value, as the message probably should be, the target is Israel. Why that targeting should have manifested itself so specifically in western Pennsylvania is unclear. CyberScoop says that there are signs of other attacks on U.S. water systems, but that so far those remain in the single digits. One of the lessons of the war in Gaza is the large role states not directly involved in a conflict can play in cyber operations. Iran's recent exploitation of vulnerable PLCs in U.S. utilities and other facilities affords an example of this, and one of the lessons of Russia's hybrid war is not only the active participation of security and intelligence services in cyber attacks, but also the use of hacktivist auxiliaries and criminal groups acting effectively as privateers. A lesson from both wars is the importance of public-private cooperation for better security, a recent example of this sort of cooperation is afforded by Dragos's announcement of the expansion of its community defense program, initially piloted last year in response to Russian action in Ukraine. That program provides training, technical support, and information sharing to small and under-resourced utilities, especially those that deliver local water and electrical power services. There are also possibilities of latent threats in the software supply chain used by industrial control systems. A report from Fortress has found that 90% of software used to manage the U.S. power grid contains code contributions from Russian or Chinese developers. Additionally, the researchers found that software with contributions from Russian or Chinese developers is two and a quarter more times likely to have vulnerabilities and three times more likely to have critical vulnerabilities. Fortress notes that there's no evidence that these code contributions were part of a state-sanctioned effort. They say, Fortress experts see a clear correlation between the increased vulnerabilities in some contributions and the country of origin, but cannot yet establish if the country of origin is the cause of the higher number. This isn't direct evidence of supply chain corruption, but it suggests a risk that prudent operators might well seek to manage. Our guest is Nick Sana from the Fair Institute and Safe Security, 
Nick talks about the challenges the White House faces in attempting to harmonize critical infrastructure regulations. Yeah, the first thing I would start with is that uh, they had this request for information to see, is this a problem? And uh, from, um, from my own perspective, especially from the Fair Institute perspective, it's absolutely a problem. I don't understand why we need to rehash it again. There's been many studies conducted by many uh, institutions that uh, basically have documented that um, regulatory overlap um, is causing many CISOs to spend half their time uh, just um, reporting on, 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 on regu- regulatory requirements versus actually managing security. So depending on the organization, again, it varies from between 60 and, and 70% of the organization. And so that has been widely documented by organizations like, you know, MIT, or I've seen an article on Fordham Law Review, uh, Bipartisan Policy Center, you know, uh, GAO, you know, General Accountability, Government uh, Accountability Office, and, um, you know, and FEI and the IRS. I mean, the number of organizations have been... Um, saying that regulatory, um, can I say, um, uh, harmonization is a must has been well documented. So we were a bit surprised to see that yet another request for information to explain the problem. I think uh, we need to move forward and, uh, and start answering some question: who's going to enforce you know, um, that harmonization. And so that's what uh, I think the main, uh, main subject should be. Can you give us a, an example of where we're seeing this overlap and the kind of uh, trouble that it introduces? Yeah, both in, in government and, can I say, and in uh, private entities, you know, a CISO may be subject to multiple regulations for, that can be uh, redundant. I know that if I if I think about the commercial sector as an example, you know, banks have multiple regulators. They need to report the Federal Reserve and the um, OCC, so that's Treasury, and then FDIC, and then there's New York, you know, uh, that is requiring some risk assessments to be done, and then uh, State of California and many state requirements. And so you're finding organizations that have like dozens of regulation, oftentimes uh, redundant, slightly different. It keeps, uh, when I say, uh, the teams very busy trying to document uh, the status of affairs versus improving it. Similarly, in government, there's many, uh, they, they have many uh, different regulatory agencies asking for different pieces of information, oftentimes duplicate and, uh, re, and, and redundant in no, no one way, in a setting where, you know, even the, at the uh, office at the National Cyber Director, and uh, they're saying that, you know, organizations should be regulated once and respond once and, and, and be able to report to many. So that's a nice objective, but it's still not the reality for many organizations on the ground. When it comes to critical infrastructure, obviously, you know, we're concerned about safety. Are there any uh, incidents here where, you know, beyond just the amount of time that it takes a CISO to deal with all these sorts of things, uh, are there any contradictory regulations or, or you know, issues along those lines? Uh, I think there are, the, the main contradiction I would say is that um, it is not clear in the industry what we're after. Are we trying to have a, uh, an agreement to have a minimum level of compliance on best practices in cybersecurity? And, or are we taking a risk-based approach? One is the uh, checklist approach of kind of what you should have implemented. And in critical infrastructure, there are a minimum set of things you need to do. But the question then is, which of the requirements should be prioritized? How much should be invested in, in meeting those requirements? 
that's where the risk-based approach come in. And today, as an industry, we focused a lot on the checklist approach, which keeps us busy going down the list, giving equal treatment or similar treatment to many security requirements without understanding what really matters most, what is most effective among my best practices, where we should pile on and, and have a more of a defense in depth strategy. You know, no single control is equivalent to another one. And it changes from company, from organization to organization in different contexts. Um, and so uh, I think that's the biggest disconnect. There are many regulations say we should take a risk-based approach, but then when the inspector general in the case of uh, uh, government agencies uh, shows up, they're asking you for a checklist on things like NIST 853 or NIST CSF, et cetera. In terms of harmonizing all these regulations, I mean, what sort of challenges is the White House up against here? Well, uh, the first thing is that um, apparently uh, every time there's a new regulation, uh, there's no real check on is this uh, regulation overlapping or potentially contradicting. And so, um, you know, in the, uh, in the cybersecurity strategy the White House just published a couple months ago, they say that, you know, they want to ask agencies to, kind uh, of say, to check uh, whether there is an existing regulation before issuing another one on the same topic or on a similar topic. But we need to um, make sure that there's an enforcement there. You know, today there was a recommendation, many executive orders have spoken about it, but that has not stemmed the problem. I think what that needs to happen is for a uh, government body, and we recommended it, that it's um, the Office of Management and Budget, you know, OMB at the White House, to come up with a directive that any new regulation must go lead an analysis looking for potential overlap and redundancy and uh, to avoid, you know, uh, multiplication of regulation. And I will go to a step forward. Um, I think that um, to avoid this problem from, uh, you know, uh, continuing to exist, we need to go to root cause and have some more fundamental house cleaning to, uh, to be done. And our um, recommendation would be for OMB to help create a database of all regulations, starting from federal agencies, and, uh, and then potentially applying, you know, intelligent techniques, maybe AI or maybe an, uh, a set of people to look to the redundancy and trying to propose harmonization there. It's, it needs to come from a central body. OMB is in the best position to do that. And, and they can set an example for also state and local have their own regulation in the private sector. I think there would be a great example to lead the industry in helping reduce the busy work and uh, help companies focus on what matters the most, which is securing the environment, you know, versus just checking boxes and demonstrating you're actually doing the work. Why do you think that OMB is the agency to best head this up? Is, I'm, there are other agencies out there like CISA, for example, who specifically work with cyber. What does OMB bring to the table? I think CISA is a, is a good agency as well, but their main focus is to help companies secure uh, their environments from the technical perspective. And so they have become an information sharing, you know, a very, very good information sharing forum and uh, a forum that um, uh, informs agencies on best practices. But I think OMB is an, in, a, in a particular good situation because as of today, all regulatory requirements um, or in, in some, as much as possible, all the reports from the IGs and the data that is harvested by agency to demonstrate a regulatory requirement may get collected by Homeland Security and CISA, but then gets reported to um, the White House at OMB. So there is a channel today that is existing, 
we are our you know our recommendation is don't uh, let's not remove the process a process that is operating. Let's strengthen it and uh, and 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 make it more efficient. So uh, let's create this database. Let's have uh, OMB uh, do a research on which you know regulation redundant. Try to come up with a rule that every agent should have one all-encompassing regulation, and then enforce it. And uh, I think they're in the best position. They have an overarching view across all all agencies in government to uh, to make sure that everybody abides by it. Which industries do you think are facing the most difficulties here? Well, I think the industry that I have in critical infrastructure have the largest number of regulation because the strictest one, you know. There are, um, in, 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 for them, it's, uh, in some mandates are not recommendation. It's a must-do. You must have these controls and it must be at this level of security. You cannot fail this. And uh, they, it's not an option, you know. And so, and, and these are typically the most strictest controls are on top of another. Series of control may apply to all other agencies uh, in, in uh, can I say, uh, indiscriminately. What are your recommendations then for a, a CISO who's trying to keep up with all of these demands uh, any tips or words of wisdom here? I think uh, to see sort of drowning in this is uh, uh, try to um, work with your inspector generals uh, as they come and examine. In, in many cases, um, try to come up with a uniform approach. Although many agencies have been asked to try to consolidate their findings and make it um, compatible with um, something like NIST, the NIST cybersecurity framework. Be good at, 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 at that. A central set of requirements be pristine to that and trying to map all the other work to that initial effort so to minimize the disruption. And when uh, they, are, uh, they have a strong um, understanding that uh, there are some issues that need, need to require attention, do a risk analysis and show that they're focusing on the biggest bars of risk, on the biggest items that are at risk versus on on, on less material elements that may check the box and may not be significant in their context. So one, again, pick up one of the regulatory requirements, be really good at that and show, you know, you are abiding by the spirit of having one regulation done well. And second, on top of it, prioritize also your regulatory work by having a risk assessment to focus, to show that you focus on what matters most. What do you suppose is a reasonable timeline here for, for the White House to, to show some meaningful progress? Listen, if they are uh, within, uh, within this administration, they're able to come out with a directive asking to, uh, uh, and, and, and mandating, not just recommending that no new regulation is issued unless a, uh, a redundancy analysis is made, you know, um, and second, to create a database of regulation, can, there can be a, a first step into then harmonizing it. I think that would be a good step. So I think that uh, that sets the timeline. If they were starting the word harmonization, they would be, I would say, I would be elated by that. But uh, again, um, those are the times in government. Sometimes they don't happen as quickly as you want. Our thanks to Nick Sana from the Fair Institute and Safe Security for joining us. In today's Learning Lab, part two of a discussion on building automation systems that Dragos's Mark Urban had with colleagues Daniel Gaeta and Zach Spencer. 
Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Learning Lab. And today we're going to talk about building automation systems. So I'm joined uh, by specialists in the area, uh, Daniel Gaeta and Zach Spencer uh, here at Dragos, a solution architect and a strategic a sales executive here at Dragos that focus on building automation. I've been in networking for, seems like, 100 years, but... Uh, you know, when you talk about network protocols, we're talking about, hey, hey, listen, that in building automation system, there is something that's controlling the heat. And there's, you know, probably, you know, there's probably a sensor someplace that's reading what the temperature is. And there's a central control mechanism someplace else in the building. And these devices communicate to central control and to each other over a network and with proprietary or semi-proprietary protocols that are really specialty protocols that are like, hey, turn up the heat, you know, turn down the heat, or here's the temperature and all these readings. And if you think about it's not only temperature, but lock or unlock the door or you know, start or stop an elevator. If you start to think about building automation, like what 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 kind of buildings are most sort of susceptible or probably prime targets if you were going to be, you know, a cyber bad guy, where where would you want to go? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, when it comes to building automation systems in general, you know, it, almost every reasonably sized commercial building has a building automation system in it. That's not to say that it's building automation systems are always critical for their operation, though. You can think of uh, large retail, for example, will have a small building automation system in a big box store, for example. But losing access to that building automation system may not be mission critical for that organization. When we think about industries such as pharmaceuticals, which heavily rely on their building automation systems, uh, data centers, which heavily rely on the cooling systems within them to run their server racks. When we think about higher education being sort of a focal point for a large amount of personally identifiable information and, and healthcare as well for PII. And again, kind of to hit on the loss of use piece in healthcare, uh, losing access to an entire wing or all of the cooling or heating within a hospital uh, can really risk patient and employee safety. And so these are just a few examples of industries where the building automation system performs a mission critical task for that organization. And if it's not completed properly by that system, can result in you know any sort of uh, operational or business impacts, but as I mentioned, human safety issues as well, which I think is paramount. Yeah, and on the human safety piece, uh, that's spot on, Zach. In that, how important is a fire and life safety system? Uh, if if that were to be deactivated and there were a fire, I mean, we're looking at a really critical situation really fast. Also, let's think about the the number of split refrigerated systems that are responsible for cooling some of these larger hotels and other types of infrastructure um, and high rises. And that's a lot of refrigerant that can displace a lot of air. And safety systems are in place there and operating and completely reliant on uh, those ICS OT networks to, to maintain reliability. And so... Um, Anywhere these control systems touch the physical world, that's where this ICSOT cybersecurity becomes really important. And, and these building automation systems uh, definitely touch the physical world and can really have a major impact to life safety, especially in the colder and hotter climates where the population is, is quite reliant on uh, that heat in the cold climates and in cooling in the, the hotter climates. Yeah, I could see it. I mean, you mentioned data centers. I could see that being especially, yeah, just, you know, with all those 
all those processors, all those, you know, uh, things, well, probably less spinning uh, anymore, but uh, definitely grinding the electrons along their path and doing so very quickly and generating heat and requiring, you know, amounts of cooling. You mentioned pharmaceuticals and temperature-sensitive labs that, you know, have to be very exacting in how those climates are controlled. You know, somebody turned, you know, my house, you know, if it dropped down to 62, you know, I might put on a sweater, but there are things that are a lot more susceptible or sensitive to changes in there that could cause big disruptions. So that's, I guess, my summary would be what, what you guys were saying is like the more kind of critical that those buildings are to the actual operation and producing revenue and executing the mission. Uh, or, you know, if they're also housing incredible, you know, intellectual property or secrets, I can imagine a number of you know, financial services buildings or government buildings or, you know, the pharma buildings where there's a lot of intellectual property that seems. Is that, is that a fair translation of kind of some of the things that you guys were saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that sort of, sums it up in a really great way where you think about, like I said, either where those buildings or those networks are hypercritical. And as the, you know, interconnection of these building automation systems occurs within those facilities and then connection of those building automation systems to enterprise or corporate IT networks, um, that's where you really run into uh, situations where creating a secure architecture around your building automation system uh, such is becomes paramount, such that uh, that can those operations can continue in a secure fashion. Well, have have there been any kind of real attacks in this space? Uh, I mean, it's you know, there's all the speculation in cyber of like what could happen, right? And there's a growing. I mean, you just look at the 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 fast growth in ransomware events across all industries, and you, you definitely no threats are real, but specific to building automation. Have, have we seen some some actual attacks that have been in the public eye? Absolutely. Uh, there's been a, a number of direct and indirect building automation system uh, exploits. And, and what do I mean by direct and indirect? And and one example of a real-world attack that's that's more indirect, I mean, we'll go back to, geez, 2013, uh, where a major U.S. retailer was breached, um, in this case through an HVAC contractor's network access to the corporate systems. And so that's just an example of how there weren't these interconnections before and this reliance on internet connectivity that we see today with secure remote access. But time and time again, historically, we've seen uh, major companies that uh, have had breaches through the building automation systems, and in this case, an uh, HVAC contractor's network access, uh, to ultimately uh, pull out uh, financial and exploit the financial systems to make a profit. Um, and so that's more of an indirect uh, example. And then more direct example, that's also uh, more recently, just even back in, in 2021, a uh, building en automation engineering firm in Germany was attacked by an adversary that uh, ultimately penetrated the building on automation systems through exposed ports. And they were in turn uh, locked out of their systems and in unable to control lighting, um, motion sensors, uh, HVAC, et cetera. And ultimately, uh, uh, what resulted was that those HVAC and, and systems were exploited by the attackers and they were in turn allowed to infiltrate further systems and and uh, and make headway in terms of, of compromising that um, that poor victim. Um, 
But but that's a more direct example where the building automation systems themselves were targeted. And I absolutely see a trend in that direction because whether or not you're controlling a building or a power plant, many of those control systems rely on those same ICS OT protocols. And so in order to even begin defending against some sort of a threat in this space, it's important to start thinking about monitoring your facility, building automation systems network to understand what normal looks like and to be looking for potential threats. We've all seen in movies, right? We've seen like super smart hacker guy manipulating, you know, traffic signals and building controls to allow his group of, you know, 10 other, you know, uh, 10 other people to, you know, break into the art museum, jewelry store, casino, and, and all those other things. But that's good movie making. Uh, but, you know, using those same techniques and, you know, and just being able to raise the temperature in a data center is a lot more subtle and can have a huge impact. It's never going to make a good movie, or maybe it could, but, uh, yeah, the, the subtlety in changing temperature or just stopping something from working, right? That's that's what ransomware is. That has, I mean, if you're bread and butter, if your revenue is built on processing transactions in a giant data center, then if you stop that ability to stop transactions, you stop generating revenue. So it's not as sexy as Notions 11, but uh, it is, you know, can have kind of dramatic consequences, but have there been things changing in the environment that make these risks more um, more real, more risky, or higher profile? Yeah, we've sort of been alluding to it already, but uh, it's this interconnection of these building automation systems and bringing them kind of to the forefront on these networks that is sort of allowing for this, um, this sort of window of exploitation sort of in between where we decide that we want to uh, break these systems out from their, you know, where they were designed, their their isolation on basically their their own networks with, uh, you know, protocols that were not typically accessible to, you know, through the internet and things like that. And in between that time point and then the the further time point somewhere down the line where we have uh, a ton of resources being dedicated to securing these from the ground up and then being designed with security in mind. And in that window, however long that is, which is where we sit today is sort of the window of opportunity for threat actors. And so, uh, again, as we sort of bring them into interconnection on enterprise IT networks, for example, you know, there are open source uh, internet search engines that can show you uh, literal building automation systems anywhere in the world that are connected to the open internet right now. And this is something that any threat actor has access to um, today. By seeing that or by... uh, whether they're utilizing an existing exploit that they uh, that has already been uh, published and just hasn't been patched on a hospital's network, for example, or whether they're a large, well-funded actor that is developing a new zero-day exploit, they can utilize these open internet search engines, for example, to find, let's say, a CCTV system that is exposed to the open internet with certain attributes that make it a uh, viable attack target for them, and then potentially either gain access to it to conduct surveillance on uh, a a target that's valuable to them, or to provide, as we keep talking about, sort of loss of use of, uh, let's say, a physical security access control system for uh, card access to 
um, you know, a, a, a data center or a healthcare facility or a financial institution, for example. To your point, there are very real risks that are, uh, you know, unfortunately exploitable in this day and age with the amount of technology that that we and threat actors have access to. We'll, we'll have some episodes coming up uh, talking about the cybersecurity journey, but you can start by, hey, where am I? If, if you have mission-critical building automation systems, data centers, things like that, you know, a good place to, to start is get some experts in to do an assessment. Uh, and I'll do a shameless plug here for the Dragos OT cybersecurity assessment as, as an example of that. And we have specialists in the building control and data center uh, areas. Uh, but that's because this is a complex area. Uh, you know, you just mentioned 10, you know, Daniel had five things. You just mentioned 10 things and navigating through that all can be a little bit daunting. So, um, yeah, that's why we're here at Dragos, uh, to give you some information. And if you need some help with them, uh, just give us a call. So Mark Urban with uh, Daniel Gaeta and Zach Spencer. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our executive producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Roche, Mark Urban, and Montserrat Thomason. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next time. Mm-hmm.